Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, Ben Makovec joins me again as we talk to Dan Bandai, CFA and Chief Investment Officer at Integrity Asset Management. Dan's story begins in Pittsburgh and takes him across the country before he settled here in Cleveland and helped build a successful buy-side investment firm. We discuss Dan's journey as well as many other topics such as the investment decision Dan's son still holds against him. Thanks for listening to this entertaining discussion with one of Cleveland's top investors. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. Excited. Sure. Just to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Wow. Wasn't expecting that question. <laughs> resume question. No, yeah, just resume question. Yeah, I haven't interviewed for a job in a while. <laughs> Professionally, I am Chief Investment Officer of Integrity Asset Management. We are a $5 billion value shop here in Rocky River, Ohio. We are a franchise under Victory Capital, which is formerly a Cleveland headquartered company. I've been in Cleveland for 27 years. I grew up in Pittsburgh, which makes football season interesting, and married a couple kids, and that's pretty much the extent of it. Oh, I didn't realize you're a Pittsburgh native. Maybe I can retract this interview now. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. Great to hear a little about your early life and your upbringing in Pittsburgh. Where'd you grow up in the Pittsburgh area? And maybe go to the college years and just tell a little about your early life. Sure. So yeah, I grew up in what would be the South Hills of Pittsburgh for folks who I guess aren't familiar with the area. That probably doesn't mean a whole lot to them. But for what it's worth, I grew up in like a lower middle class household where an investment to my family was life insurance. So really grew up knowing nothing about investing, no clue whatsoever. Went to the University of Pittsburgh, got an economics degree, graduated in 1987, which was not a great time in Pittsburgh to find a job. And also I learned that you're really qualified to almost do nothing when you get an economics degree. So I graduated, actually got married right after graduation. My wife and I started dating in high school and we got married right out of college. And I was working for a company called Hills Department Store, H-I-L-L-S. I think there used to be Hills in Ohio, I don't know about Cleveland, who were subsequently put out of business by Walmart. But I was a, what they call a soft lines manager. So I managed basically like 60-year-old women who had to call me Mr. Bandai, which is kind of funny because I like, you know, I know you said this won't be on video, but you can look at me and know that I know nothing about clothes. But uh, anyway, it wasn't like my ideal job, working retail. And my wife had worked a couple different, she's an engineer, a couple different engineering jobs in Pittsburgh and got laid off with the economy. And so we ended up moving to, well, we moved to New Jersey, then Texas for her job. She worked for EDS. And kind of the deal was for us is that 
she was going to be in New Jersey for a year. And then you go to Texas and you do this training with EDS back then. And if you pass the training, you kept your job. If you didn't, you lost your job. But it was like, okay, well, let's do that. But when I get to Texas, I wanted to get my MBA. So I worked some temp jobs in New Jersey, took some prereqs for MBA, got to Texas, and I went to East Texas State University, which is now Texas A&M Commerce, got my MBA. And, and that's really where I learned about investing. I took a course, an investments course, a graduate level investments course. And I remember reading, I'm trying to think, I didn't think of the book on my shelf, but it was one of the books you read for the CFA exam. And it just struck me. I was like, wow, like this is like the applicable side of economics. And it was like a light went off. I can remember where I was. We were in corporate housing. My wife was at work. I went to school at night. So I'm laying on the couch and I'm reading this stuff. And I'm like, whoa, like this is like really the applicability of econ, which I love econ, but it was like the flip side of the coin that you could actually do something with. So I took a bunch of finance courses, my grad program. We were a really small school. I mean, I had classes with three or four people. I had some professors who took a real interest in me, did a lot of research. Our philosophy then, you know, the grad school philosophy is very heavily value oriented. And so I just kind of fell in love with it there. I'm like, yeah, this is kind of what I want to do. So I got out of there and I graduated in December of 90 and we moved to Detroit. There's a whole story on that, but it had to do with some family issues. So we moved to Detroit in December of 1990, right around the time I think we were invading Iraq for the first time. The economy was horrible. We're driving Japanese cars and there's stories of people throwing bricks off bridges and whatever, the people with Japanese cars at the time in Detroit. And I'm like this stupid young kid. I, I have like an MBA. I got a 395 for what it's worth to people. I got one B, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking like, man, Kid MBA, almost a 4.0 average, like the world's just going to open up. People will be like throwing job offers at me, which didn't happen. But anyway, so I was really struggling to find a job. And in March of 90, you're going to edit this stuff out. Like, this is like a long, winding story. I apologize, but that's <laughs> no, why. keep going. So in like March of 90, I'm like, man, this is like, uh, you know, and I had done like a lot of networking stuff. My professors who knew people set me up with stuff, but there was like nothing. And so I responded to an ad for a broker at a company called Oldie Discount, O-L-D-E Discount. And they're now part of H&R Block Financial Services. And I was like, well, I don't know, get me in the industry, right? Just get a foot in the door and see what you can do. You know, I really want to be an analyst. So I went on this interview and I'm talking to this guy and he's looking at my resume. And so for people listening today of your ilk, like it's really hard back then to do research on companies. It wasn't like you can just go to their website and see like what they do. So this was not the best researched interview in my life. But so he's looking at my resume and he goes, you know, I know you're interviewing for a broker position, but you really look like you'd be more qualified to be an analyst. Is that like something you'd be interested in? I'm like, well, yeah, that would be. That's actually what I am interested in. I didn't know they had a research department. They're a very small research department. And so in sort of my serendipitous life, the next part of the interview, I'm talking to their head of sales. I'm not going to go into who he was or what he was, but anyway, I'm talking to him and and he's like, oh, okay. What do you like in the market now? And again, like I told you, I came from a really poor family. The most I knew about the market was academically from school, but I knew in the nineties, we had had the SNL banking crisis and being a value investor and a contrarian, I was like, well, you know, bank stocks have been kind of beat down. I think maybe there's some opportunities there. And literally this is what happened. They're like, you know what? Our bank analyst just left. 
how would you like to be our bank analyst? <laughs> I was like, all right, sure. Why not? You know? So I accepted the job right there to the ilk of my wife, who was like, well, you know, you could have discussed it with me first. But anyway, so I accepted that job. It paid a whole $14,500 a year. And I got a thousand dollar a year raise if I passed my series seven, because it was really a brokerage firm and that's what they pay their brokers. But anyway, yeah. So I started out at Oldie as a bank analyst, really knowing nothing. And it was kind of a sink or swim situation. And you just kind of had to figure it out. And Matt, I don't know if you're a covered banks. I know Ben does in great detail. It's different. It's not an industrial balance sheet. So it was a learning curve for me. By the grace of actually some of the people I covered, there was a guy who, he was treasurer in the investor contact at Charter One Financial. His name was Jim Peterangelo. He just died a few years ago. And Jim was just an awesome dude. Like I could ask him anything. He would explain stuff. He kind of took me under his wing, helped me learn the banking business. So anyway, so I learned that there and Oldie was really a tech shop. So I ended up doing banks and technology with them. I ended up leaving them and going to a small regional firm in Columbus called the Ohio Company, where I followed like Midwestern banks and thrifts, working with an investment banker. And then I ended up coming to Cleveland, sort of again, serendipitously, you know, for what it's worth, like bad management. There was a buy side position open at the Ohio Company that I had put in for and didn't get. And then I found out through kind of the hiring manager that the reason I didn't get it is because they felt like I was too hard to replace on the sell side. And it, it kind of pissed me off, if I can say that on here. Go ahead. <laughs> and weirdly, like right after that happened, I got a call from a headhunter just saying like, hey, looking for a buy side analyst to work on this in-house pension group in Cleveland. And normally, again, I've really not lived in Cleveland long and I lived in Pittsburgh. But at that time, I would have been like, nah, man, I ain't going to Cleveland. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but I was angry. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to talk to these people. And it was a great opportunity. I mean, it got me to the buy side. I was like an analyst and working with two PMs. We ran like four or $500 million in-house at Eaton. So that got me to Cleveland. It got me on the buy side. I got really involved with the society. And that was really key to sort of my next step. I got to know a lot of people here. My group got shut down in Eaton. We got indexed. Our treasurer at the time, Bob Parmenter, was really big on, he doesn't believe in active management. A random walk guy believes in indexing. He shut our group down when he became treasurer. And through a couple contacts in the society, I got a job at National City. I got to know Mary Jane Maths, who hired me to be her co-manager on the Large Cap Value Fund, which I am forever grateful. And she is an awesome person and was an amazing person to work for and learn from. And within the following year, I got asked if I wanted to run a small cap value product at National City because they had parted ways with the manager in Columbus who was running that product. And that's kind of when my team started to come together. Dan DeMonica was also working with me at the time on the large cap value product. And Adam Friedman came over from growth. And that was sort of the core of what eventually become integrity asset management. It was the three of us. And we added two more people, Brian Tinsley and Joe Gilbert, while at National City. And eventually we felt like the best thing for us was as investors to not be owned by a bank. And so we left in June of 03, and started Integrity Asset Management. We sold in 2010 to a firm to expand our distribution, and that firm sold to Victory in 2014. Got it. Well, hey, thanks for that career history. That's really interesting. If anybody's still awake. <laughs> a lot of questions in my mind to unpack there. So I think it's really interesting that you were hired as an analyst right out of 
grad school in a complex sector like banking, which has obviously been in the news this year. What were some really first learning lessons that that you kind of maybe stubbed your toe on as a bank analyst in that first job that you really still view as extremely important today? Yeah. And again, it was a different time. The internet's been amazing for information flow. That was back when you get earnings releases on fax machine. And we had one Bloomberg that was shared by the whole research department. So I just started out like back then you would call the company and say, hey, can I get your investor packet? And they would send it to you. I had my course in banking. I did have a graduate course in banking. So I referred back to that and just really started reading the 10Ks, the 10Qs, trying to understand call reports. And it was a bit of a slog. And I just had to sort of slowly try to, it was like learning a language where you're trying to interpret, like I know industrial balance sheets. And so this is this, this is this, this margin sort of equates to that margin and trying to figure your way through it. I think really one of the biggest challenges is knowing that you don't know it, but then having to talk to management and try to figure out what's going on and trying to ask questions that sound intelligent. And then also I was bullied a lot by management because they knew, I mean, they, they knew like you didn't know what you were talking about. And that was really hard. And also the ego side of working on the sell side is pretty difficult because brokers aren't very nice people sometimes when, when things go bad. So you're a young kid and you recommend a stock that goes down 20%. You're getting a lot of calls and they're not saying nice things about you. And that was really the biggest struggle for me was really the ego side of it. What little advice I can give young people today because the world's so different is that to succeed in this business, you need just enough ego to survive. You can't have too much because then you end up making really big mistakes. And if you don't have enough, you're going to get eaten alive and you're not going to be able to make decisions. And so I think I was very, very intellectually curious. And I think maybe if it weren't for Jim Peter Angelo at Charter One, who I could call and say, hey, Jim, how do these things interact? Like, what, what does this mean, liability sensitive versus asset sensitive? He was really, truly a mentor to me and helping me make those translations from one to another. And so as a young person, finding somebody like that, I don't know if there's a way to do it, but having had that person in my life was paramount. And also at that time, I think for me, Having bank failures was helpful, and Charter One was very active. They would buy failed banks and walking through them where they're willing to open the kimono and explain to you why this is a good deal and understanding the structuring and all that was really helpful. But a lot of it is just trying to figure it out and really just trying to keep yourself from quitting. I had days where I'd go home and just be like, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know that I can really learn this. I don't know that I can do it. And just kind of had to just keep plugging away at it. Sure. Not to fast forward too much, but I'd love to get your perspective a little bit. You said the two words that we've all been hearing a lot right now, banking crisis. Mm -hmm. You started off as a bank analyst in the savings and loan crisis. And then obviously you've seen 2008 as an investor. What are some, and we don't need to get into specific companies, but what are some general themes you see right now that are maybe parallels to those two times and maybe some differences that you see right now? Yeah, sure. So I feel like one of the parallels to the earlier crises is where asset yields are on people's balance sheets relative to where current rates are and to the extent that people might be forced to sell or refinance those liabilities where you may end up with situations that I saw back in the early 90s where you have balance sheets that are underwater. You're slowly eroding capital because your asset yields are lower than what your liability yields are. 
And do you have enough equity to make your way through that and, and transition things? So that reminds me of some names that I had been involved with earlier in my career. And then when I looked at 08, I feel like the capital issues and even just some of the early market panic, where I think people were just looking for an exact sort of replay, like there's going to be contagion and this is going to spiral out of control. And we're going to wind up with massive bank failures like we did in 08. And I'm not sure that that's correct. I'm not saying that it makes some great investments today from an equity standpoint. I think that there is going to be some capital raises that will probably maybe keep equity down for a while. And you're in the position from an investor of trying to disprove a negative, which is always pretty tough to make money doing that. Ben and I talked about it at lunch and Grant's talked to him about some of the preferreds. And I look back to kind of 08 and it seemed like the preferreds and the debt were really the first to move. And I feel like that was a mistake that we made in 08, 09. I think we got a lot of the market right in terms of what we bought late 08, early 09. We, we had a really strong 09 in performance because of, we have a portfolio game plan for these times like coming out of COVID. But I think an area where we were early was in the financials and we felt there were some really good values, which there were. It's just a matter of timing and when the market was going to be willing to reprice that. And so the first move was really in debt and preferred. And we don't really play in that area. Anyway, we're not buying that stuff, but we are underweight banks and we're going to be a little bit more patient this time around. Dan, you just mentioned the concept of timing. How do you think about timing? From a portfolio management standpoint, what are some things you look at? Is it sentiment, price action? What helps you get a edge on timing? Not to give you a whole integrity asset management sales pitch, but we have this concept of right company, right price, right time. So we're really looking for those three things together. And we feel like one of the challenges with value investing is the proverbial value trap. In theory, like we're value managers, so everything we're looking at is cheap. So how are you going to buy something that's actually going to outperform sometime soon? And our overall goal in life is to be consistent for our clients. And there's different ways to skin the value cap. You can be a deep value manager, and that works at different points in the cycle. You can be just a quality person. I want to buy good companies, strong balance sheets. And that works at different points in the cycle. We felt when we started doing this back in 99, that we could do it a little bit differently and look at different indicators along the market cycle that helps us decide what flavor of value we want to be in the portfolio at any point in time. So that's really where it starts, is philosophically just trying to look at the market and say, well, what are the risk and reward opportunities that are available? And based on that, what's that telling us about market sentiment? And then based on that, what do we think is going to work based on market sentiment? So one of the things that we look at a lot is valuation spreads. And so we'll look at within sector by sector, a concept of just very simplistically, what's the spread between the most expensive and least expensive names in a sector? And if that's very wide, that signals a high degree of controversy, a high degree of stress a high degree of pessimism. And there's different types of companies that work differently in that environment, say that when valuation spreads are very narrow and market is like, oh, everything's cool and nothing can go wrong. So that's kind of where it starts. It's just trying to understand where we are in the cycle. Because for example, you can buy sort of a sum of the parts story, say go back to like 06 and the market's going and blowing and you can buy a sum of the parts story that looks drastically undervalued when it's a restructuring story. And you know what? Nobody cares. They don't care. It's like, how much are you growing earnings? What's earnings going to be next quarter? You're just going to have to hit on all cylinders. It's basically a momentum market because momentum's working. So you can buy that stock. And you and I have talked about this concept, Ben, of long-term 10-year investing. Over 10 years, you're probably going to make good money in that name. 
but your clients are going to get impatient. And if you have too much of that in your portfolio, what's going to happen is you're going to underperform and the client's going to be asking you why. And their view, and like the old adage, there's really no difference between being wrong and being too early. So the first step for us is trying to understand where we are in that market cycle on a very simplistic basis. On a stock-specific basis, though, if you think of it as three levels, like company-specific, industry-specific, or macro-specific, or some combination of all three of those. And so from a value investor perspective, my simplistic view of value investing is if you think of Finance 101 and your sustainable rate of growth, right, ROE times your retention rate, that sustainable rate of growth for the broad swath of value companies is greater than what their market grows. So management has to have something productive to do with that capital because if they just reinvest it, if I'm producing capital at a 7% sustainable growth rate, my market's growing at three and I just reinvest that all in my market, unless I have something exciting going on where I can take market share, I'm going to crush my returns on invested capital and eventually my stock is going to underperform and I'm probably going to blow up someday. So on a very company specific level, we want to get involved with managements that either have something good to do with that. So it might be a new product introduction. They may be good acquirers. They may be expanding into adjacent markets. Or again, something going on in the industry for whatever reason might be in a growth phase. Or macro, and that gets back to more of the cycle. Like, you know, rates are going up, going down, curves steep, curves flat. We'll point you to or away from different opportunities. But ultimately then back to management is if they don't have good ideas, we want the money back. We want it back in the form of dividends, buybacks, or selling your company. And one of our best money-making catalysts over the years has been new management. Because you have so many management teams, and I'm sure you see it in a lot of the banks that you follow, that they're really just empire builders. They're going to grow the firm because that means more money for them. It means more accolades for them. And they're really ignoring the underlying fundamentals of the company as they're slowly deteriorating. Eventually, hopefully, the board wakes up and they replace them. And then you have a situation of a depressed stock. A new management comes in with low-hanging fruit. And you can get a pretty good ramp up and make some pretty decent money over a short period of time. And we found some of them to be our best opportunities in terms of making money for our clients. I've always felt, whether it's on the bank side or wherever, it's easier to go from below average to average than it is to go from average to above average. And then definitely to go from being above average to being above average five years down the road. You're a value guy too. I mean, I'm a value guy. I believe in reversion to the mean. Eventually, everybody's competitive advantage will get competed away. It's a matter of how long that takes. And so we're very less likely to bet on companies that are doing extremely well and betting that will continue. I'd rather bet on you're doing poorly and that you can just get back to average. That's where a lot of our catalysts come from. Sure. You guys start Integrity, and I think you said 2003, are eventually purchased by Victory, which probably many people in the Cleveland area know about. Take us through that progression from starting Integrity to selling to Victory and to kind of where you're at now. Sure. So for what it's worth, we started Integrity on June 12th of 2003. So this is our 20-year anniversary coming up, by the way. So, Oh, congrats. Yeah, thank you. So it was 20 years for us. But yeah, so we started on June 12th, which was a Thursday. And we really wanted to start the firm on a Friday because it's just easier. I mean, we knew there's going to be legal issues and it's easier to do something where you have a whole weekend for people to cool off. But then we looked at the calendar and then Friday was the 13th. And we felt like maybe Friday the 13th, not to be too superstitious, isn't the best day to start a company. So we did it that Thursday, June 12th. It was one of the worst days of my life. It was one of the hardest days of my life. 
going in and resigning and knowing that there was kind of a poop storm that was going to follow this. So we left and then we worked things out with National City after we left. It took a while. So we left in June of 03. We had accounts set up that were funded so that the day we left, we were able to reinvest to try to keep our track record going so we could link them up. And we got our first client in November of that year. And it's tough to get your first client. It's really hard. Nobody wants to be that person. I don't know why, but they don't want to be. It's not much easier to get your second or third client either. So eventually, thankfully, it was kind of a good, perfect storm. We were actually underperforming when we left. We made up the performance. We had a good 03. We had a good track record. We were well-known by consultants because we started over. We had nothing. You kind of hit your growth ramp. And we were institutional focused. So we were 99.9% institutional. And we got to a point in 03 where we felt like the institutional market is going slowly in distribution. There's more people in the U.S. taking from pension funds than contributing. And they were our main client. And we felt like we needed to get into the growth areas. And how do you do that? So we had a strategic review as a firm. So we could either build it or partner. And we had an investment banker involved with us. And we came across Munder Capital. They're best known for the net net fund, which I don't know, you were probably in grade school back then. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't even know. High school, but High school. All right. we don't All need right. to go down that road. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll save that for another day. But anyway, they had really good distribution in some of these growth areas. And it looked like some pretty good synergies we could have. So we joined with them and they took over like all our back office compliance. Just Outsourced everything except for, so all we do here in Rocky River is investing. And so Munder came out of Comerica. They come out of a bank. They were funded by a private equity firm called Crestview uh, in New York. And for the local folks, they probably know the Victory story. Victory left key. And they were funded by the same private equity firm. And I think Crestview was looking at both firms were about $17 billion and assets under management, so somewhat subscale. They both had a similar strategy of looking to do acquisitions of groups like us, where you basically buy investment excellence and you leave it alone and you just back office everything else for them. So you get those synergies. And so in Crestview's mind and its work, that felt like that would give them more scale. So you put the two firms together and that's worked out pretty well. So Munder sold to Victory, really more of a partnership with Victory, not like it was a premium or anything involved. But anyway, so they got together and my relationship with Victory is pretty much the same as it was with Munder. It's a pretty good relationship. Nothing in the world is perfect, but we have 13 people in the office here in Rocky River. And we come in every day and it's like we're integrity asset management and outside of like HR issues, legal stuff like that. We don't really deal much with what we, what we call the mothership. They do sales marketing, all that stuff for us. It's a pretty good symbiotic relationship. And back in 10, when we partnered with Munder, you kind of look at like, what am I good at? At least what do I think I'm good at anyway? And what do I like to do? And neither of them involve bureaucracy, meetings, hiring people, HR. Those are things that I despise. And investing is something that I like. And I like dealing with my clients. I love investing. So that really just allowed me to just focus completely on that. What I didn't want to do was try to go out and hire 10 wholesalers and build all this stuff. And I felt like that would be a distraction from my day-to-day -day job, which puts the firm at risk. And it just isn't what excites me. It's just not what I like. Not there's anything wrong with it. There's people who are good at it and love it. I don't know who you are, but good for you. Maybe turning to the personal side, to the extent you're willing to share, tell us about personal life and personal passions outside of work. That's funny. So 
I don't have a ton of passions outside of work. And this comes up with your clients. I mean, I'm 58, so I'm not as young as I used to be, unfortunately. And so you always get that question about like, are you going to retire? And I've gone through that like mental exercise a few times. I don't know what I would do. Like if you read my bio, I say I'm a bad golfer. I've golfed six holes in like the last three years. I can't golf every day. So I don't have a ton of hobbies. So I've had my family. I'm married. i married for 35 years now, I think. And I've got two kids. I got a daughter in grad school. My son is an undergrad. He plays baseball. That's something I enjoy. Him and I have worked on baseball. He's a pitcher. We've been, I think, at the forefront of a lot of the, not that we've done them, but we've learned about them, the innovations in pitching mechanics and all the things that Trevor Bauer used to be made fun of. We were kind of on the same path as he was with those things. So that stuff kind of interests me. I mean, maybe like if I left investing, I would coach a baseball team. I've taught in the past. I enjoy teaching. It's something I wouldn't mind doing again. I taught remotely, which wasn't as a rewarding experience, but teaching finance to kids is exciting to me. I haven't done that in a while, but most of my life is really my kids, my family, and my job. That's pretty much it. The people I work with, I've worked with for almost forever. So it sounds cliche. They're they're not really family, but they're close. (laughs) You come to work with people that you like, and not every day is a joyous day in this business, but I enjoy what I do. And so I don't have any real exciting hobbies. Again, outside of baseball, health stuff, I joke with my doctor that I'm a certified internet doctor. So I read a lot of research and things on health as I've gotten older. So that's a semi-passion of mine. But outside of that, that's really about it. What are your thoughts on the new pitch clock rules? It's interesting. I think a lot of the new rules are a little bit silly. I don't know. I mean, I guess the games have been quicker. So I was wrong. I felt like somebody could do a study and watch the games and figure out really where the delays are. I think in my opinion, for the most part, it shifts the balance of power back to the pitcher, which was a complaint a few years ago, like they wanted to move the mound back because of all the innovations in pitching and pitch design and all those things that have come about. So the guy, I forget his name, but he used to be the pitching coach at Vanderbilt a number of years ago. He went on to the Milwaukee Brewers and somewhere else. And his thing, and I thought that was interesting when we went to a pitch clock, is that when he coaches, he tries to coach his pitchers to throw your next pitch within 12 seconds. Because research shows it takes more than 12 seconds for the brain to process what it just saw. So as a pitcher, if you can pitch within 12 seconds, it's harder for the batter to normalize to what you're doing. So I felt like from that perspective, then you're really creating that situation for every pitcher, as long as it doesn't mess with them mentally. And then you have guys like Scherzer out there who now, like, you watch him, he throws a ball, he goes and steps on the rubber. And I know now, like, they got what a rule, you got to make eye contact. But as soon as you make eye contact, he's throwing the ball. And I feel like it's hard enough to hit a guy like that. And now he's, like, on you. So I think it's interesting, and I just wish they'd quit fiddling with things, like the shift. I think the shift rules are stupid. It's like government regulation. You're just like plugging a hole, and then there's another hole. So they outlaw the shift, so people are now bringing the outfielders up to create a shift. And I feel like you're paying $40 million a year. You can hit a ball pretty much anywhere. I never understood, like, if there's no third baseman, why can't you hit the ball down that third base zone? I don't know. So have you changed allegiances at all? Are you still a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, given that your kids, I think, sounds like we're born and raised here in Cleveland. Are you still a Pirates fan? Maybe they're Guardians fans. Or how does that shake out within the family? I'm not a Pirates fan anymore. So I lived in Detroit, and I mentioned I moved to Detroit in December of 90. And the Pirates, they had three years in a row where they went to the National League Championship Series, 
And it was like Reds, Braves, Braves. And they lost all three years. And slowly, the Pirates were dismantling that team. We had Barry Bonds, pre-steroid Barry Bonds, when he weighed like a buck 65 and played outfield, even though he couldn't throw Sid Bream out at home plate, but whatever. You had Bobby Bonilla. Like, you had a really stacked team. And honestly, I can remember that play where Sid Bream scored from second base and Barry Bonds couldn't throw him off from right field. No Roberto Clemente, that's for sure. But he couldn't throw him off from right field. And the Braves won that game, I think, in the ninth inning. And I can remember walking upstairs to bed, shaking my head, just saying, I'm done. And they went on to lose like 15 or 16 seasons in a row. It was kind of like the Browns, right? In a normally distributed world where most sports teams are a coin flip, and it was back to my analogy on companies, but it's like, in theory, just as hard to be that bad in baseball or football as it is to be that good. It's just as hard to be the Browns through those losing years as it was to be the Patriots. Because it's a coin flip. It's a coin flip world. But yeah, no, I stopped. And so when I moved to Cleveland, I did become a Cleveland fan. Good. We're happy to have you. Does your football legion still lie in Pittsburgh, given that their organization has had a much different trajectory? Yeah, it's hard to not. And I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s. I saw four Super Bowls in six years. And it's hard not to be, even through the tough years with the Steelers. It's such a good organization. I did get my personal value trap is season tickets to the Cleveland Browns that I got when Jimmy Haslam bought the team. I'm like, oh, this dude's coming from the Steelers organization. He's just going to take that blueprint. And it's like, no, he didn't. It's like he just went wild. And not to get into the whole thing, I'm very disappointed with the Deshaun Watson stuff. It's just hard to get behind him. And for the team to do well, he has to do well. And it's just hard to root for him. Personally, I went through the same thing with Ben Roethlisberger. I couldn't wear the guy's jersey or anything. It's hard to to root for somebody who has that in their past. And we'll see what he does. We'll see if, if there's any other stuff that comes up on him. I know for Roethlisberger, at least he did seem to keep his, after his incidents, seemed to maybe grow up a little bit and keep his nose clean. So, But that does make it really tough. But the Browns were my second team, oddly enough. Okay. Dan, you've made a lot of investments over the years. Can you tell us about an investment you didn't make that's related to this? That's related to this? Ben's being the good lawyer and asking me a question that he knows the answer to. (laughs) It's kind of funny. So when David Tepper, this is my closest brush with investment fan. When David Tepper bought the Carolina Panthers, you can't own two franchises. He was a minority owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so you can't have ownership in two teams. And so he had to sell his stake in the Steelers. And through an odd connection with a buddy of mine who used to work on the sell side, who was doing something else, who knew a guy who was the broker for that piece of a Steeler ownership, he called me up one day and he's like, hey, Dan, he said, uh, would you like to own a piece of the Pittsburgh Steelers? And then I was like, well, yeah, I would like, who wouldn't like to own a piece of the Pittsburgh Steelers? But I really don't think I can do that. And he said, well, you know what? Why don't you just talk to this guy? He's remarketing David Tepper's piece of the Steelers. Why don't you just talk to him, see what the story is? So I did. He's like, hey, you know, maybe in the end, you just end up meeting the Roonies or whatever, and you can decide there's no obligation. Good sales guy, right? There's no obligation. And so I did the call with him and I was talking to him and I forget what the valuations were. So whatever it was, it was a lot of money. It wasn't like completely undoable what it was, but it would have been almost every penny that I have. So I talked to him and then I ended up talking to David Tepper, CFO about it. And then eventually I was like, you know what? I can't do that. It's just too much money. So then it kind of died for a while. 
And then I got a call back from him. He said, well, what about half that? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Half I actually might be able to do. And so I had a long talk with my wife about it. And so the pitch was, it was going to be me and then Dan Marino, who was going to take down the other piece of the other half of the ownership. And so in the end, I decided not to do it. And But it would have been really cool. My son is forever angry at me for not doing it. Because, you know, you get to go to like the training camps, you get to sit in the owner's box. It would have been really cool to do. But that's really the most exciting investment opportunity that had ever been presented to me. It was a fun period. I think the salesperson was upset with me when I said no. And honestly, I didn't think to do the half. But I guess as I went through the process, it's really hard to buy one of these franchises because you have to do it yourself. It like has to be in your name. You can't borrow money to do it. So you can't form a syndicate. You can't borrow money. So it really whittles down like the number of people who can do it. Like if you want to be an owner like Tepper or Haslam, you have to buy, I believe, 51% with cash. You can't go to the bank and borrow money to buy the Browns. It's like, no, you actually have to have that money. So you think of these valuations for $3 billion valuation, you're going to have to come up with $1.5 billion of money to hand over to people. It becomes a very limited group, which I guess explains why it's hedge fund managers that are buying all these firms now. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing. And I don't know if you did this in your analysis, but did you work out how many Ohio or Cleveland-based clients would fire you after you made that personal investment? (laughs) You know, if you look in my bio, I do put that I'm a rabid Steelers fan. So it's right there. It's out front. And uh, I don't have a ton of Ohio clients anyway, so I'd be good. Yeah, (laughs) As long as the disclosure is out there. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Maybe this is a good part to kind of go to a lightning round, quick answer, fun session, if that's okay with you. Oh, yeah. All right. Nickname. Oh, my God. I have to decide if I can say this or not. (laughs) All right. This would be honestly outside of my family and the people that I grew up with. Nobody knows this. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is a CFA Society of Cleveland exclusive. We'll keep it secret. I'll tell you what. Go on to the next one. I need to decide if I can do this. Okay. Okay. Go go on to the next one. And it's not that great. It's just, you know, nobody knows. Fair enough. Favorite recipe to cook, if you're a cook? I do cook a lot of stuff. I like cooking my chili. I make a pretty good chili. And not that it's really a recipe, but I think I make a really awesome sous vide filet mignon. You may have answered this before with that book that kind of turned you on to investing in finance, but what is the best book that you've ever read about investing in finance? Oh, that I've ever read about investing in finance? That's really hard. I'm terrible with names. So Ben, help me out with this one. It's really one of a couple of books. There's the one that's really not published by the hedge fund dude, Ben. Help. Jack Schwager? No. Market Wizards? No. There's like a PDF of it going around. Oh, Seth Klarman. Seth Klarman. Thank you. Margin of Safety, I, I really thought was like an awesome book. And I think anything written by Marx at Oak Tree, particularly if you're a younger person, I just think that's an awesome book for investing. I will say if I can divert on investing for my view on investing is if you're a younger person, I I would also recommend that reading books on psychology, like Thinking Fast and Slow, stuff by Stanley Milgram on crowd behavior. I think understanding how people think and behave and how to read people, I just think has really been 
super helpful for me more than learning how to do the numbers of finance. It's more about just understanding how people think and act and the dynamics of organizations, I think is really, really helpful, just as an aside. Sure. Bucket list travel destination. Wow. I would like to see the Northern Lights. I would really like to do that. Any hidden talents? <laughs> wow. I might be better off going to... <laughs> Not that I can think of. If it one comes to me, it's hard in a lightning round. I will come back to it. Sure. Are you an in-office guy or a remote setting? I hate remote. Best lunch spot in Cleveland? Hmm. Joe's Deli. What's your favorite way to get active? You said you're, you're into fitness, you're into yeah. health. What's, what's your favorite way to get active? So I have a personal trainer. I like lifting weights. Lifting weights is like my go-to. Sure. What's your most memorable Cleveland sports moment? And I'm going to stick to the Cleveland sports moment, not Pittsburgh sports moment. The problem with memorable Cleveland sports moments is they're all moments of sadness. <laughs> I guess, and unfortunately they lost, going to the World Series game. Oh, I guess my most memorable, so, and I'm not a big professional basketball fan, going to game six of the Cavaliers versus, again, I'm terrible with names, the year they won the championship, Seth Curry's team. Golden State Warriors. Golden State. So game six of that series we went to, and that was super exciting. Yeah. Now, Ben, I think you said in your episode that you went to game seven. Were you at game six here in Cleveland as well? I was, yeah. That was quite a run. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Last one, favorite thing to do in Cleveland or favorite aspect of the city that you enjoy? Playhouse Square. I, mean, I joke about Cleveland, but I don't know. I think Cleveland's a great city. It has a lot of stuff that people just don't realize. And Playhouse Square is one of them. I mean, we're... Well, like the largest theater district outside of New York or Chicago or something like that. But yeah, between that, the sports teams, the lake, everything. I enjoy Cleveland. It's very much like where I grew up. It's similar to Pittsburgh. The ethnic neighborhoods, the fish fries on Friday during Lent, stuff like that. What's the best show you've seen in Playhouse Square? Uh, the best show I've seen in Playhouse Square, probably, God, you know, it's like I'm terrible with remembering something. There's trying to remember what, I just saw something recently. Hamilton was good. I mean, that's pretty cliche. Everybody liked Hamilton. Hamilton was good. Come From Away is really good. And I wish I could remember, there was one just recently. Oh, Town. Town was really good. And Jesus Christ Superstar was really good also. That's one of my favorite movies. The new rendition on Broadway of that is really cool, the way they do the stage and everything. Well, that's all the questions we have. Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it and hope you have a great weekend. So do you want to hear the nickname? I'll do it. So let's do it. Let's hear the nickname <laughs> if you're willing to share with the close CFA community that will never say anything outside of just us. All right. It's Sal. S-O-W. Sal. Yeah. Okay. So for what it's worth, I've gone through periods of my life when I've been relatively heavy. I was a heavy child and a friend of mine's little brother who was pretty mean <laughs> would call me like Porky Pig. <laughs> and that just, I don't know, it just kind of dovetailed into Sal, which was said with affection. It wasn't like, that's why like nobody outside of my hometown really knows because it sounds very derogatory. My wife hates it. <laughs> but it meant like you call somebody Haas or something like that. It's more along those lines. But yeah, so nobody knows it outside of that small community in Pittsburgh. So there you go. It's a, it's a CFA exclusive. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing. I was hoping it was a PG nickname and it definitely it was. Wasn't. Yeah, that's nice. it wasn't anything <laughs> like, I mean, if you talk to some of the brokers who I used to write research for, they might have 
different nicknames for me, but that's a different story. So, sure. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. Been a really enjoyable conversation and hope to see you at a CFA event in the near future. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, Cindy. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.